Thanks, Simeon. You can. Thank you. You can. You can speak to us from up here. It's all good. It's all good, brother. Hey, uh, good morning. I think it's still morning. Good morning, y'all. If we haven't met yet, my name is Landon Jones. I'm one of the elders here at Riverside. It's really good to see you. Um, if we haven't met and you are newer, I did want to mention that we have a lunch on June 13th, the same Sunday we're going back to one service. Um, after that service, we'll have a lunch for anybody that's new to learn more about us. Uh, you are invited. Uh, there'll, there'll be links on our website and all kinds of stuff. But if you come and you stick around, we'll have some food for you. I also want to mention one other quick thing before we get in the sermon. Landon and Emily Nichols are in the back with their boys. Yeah. Um, Landon and Emily are some of our missionaries to Manchester, England. They work with Muslim peoples there. They're here on furlough to get rest. Um, And so we're going to give them rest. They've already been here all morning. And they graciously were here just to say, hey, we're here. Um, But they're going to be back this afternoon from 3 to 5 in the church basement. They'll be here the next couple of weeks. I mean, we want them to get rest during this time. That means that the best time to connect with them, if you know them or you want to encourage them or hear about their ministry, is on Sundays, particularly these drop-ins we're going to have from 3 to 5 on Sunday afternoons uh, the next two Sundays. Have some refreshments. Um, Y'all hopefully get more, be more engaged, people taking care of the boys. So on that note, I'm going to say, Y'all go ahead, head out. Enjoy your afternoon. Thank you guys for being with us. I'm really grateful. Um, and as they head out, uh, speaking of heading out, speaking of uh, getting rest, uh, I'm going to be out of here in a couple of weeks uh, on sabbatical. Um, very excited about that. Uh, you might be like, okay, I don't even know you, and what does that mean? Um, we've been preparing for a while for me as a pastor and my family to go on sabbatical, and we are so grateful for this. We are so grateful. I was supposed to take it last year of course, 2020 pandemic. And so I feel like God knew what he was doing in his timing. Um, and that if I would have taken it last year, it, been, it might not have been very restful. There's a lot of hard things going on, but it feels more restful this summer. So from my family to this church family, thank you. Thank you for setting apart. And I hope the Lord will give me rest and renewal, my family rest and renewal to come back for a next big season of ministry. Um, in fact, one of the things that we're planning on doing has gotten in my mind this week as I've been preparing this sermon we're going to take a three-week trip to Montana in Kit Haynes' car. It's going to be awesome. Uh, we still need a car top carrier, by the way. If anybody has one, we could, we could borrow. Um, we're looking forward to it. That's a picture of near Bozeman, Montana. We're going to do a big trip on the way out, stay there on the way back. Um, but have you ever tried to explain a faraway land in a long trip to six-year-olds? That's what I've been trying to do the last few weeks. I've got twin six-year-olds and a 13-year-old. Guys, there's going to be beautiful mountains, and there's going to be fishing and swimming and biking. And for my younger son, Lincoln, there's going to be a museum with dinosaur bones. Um, I know Miss Susan, Miss Susan Richardson would love to show him all that if she could. You know, at this point to my kids, and even to Laura and me, Montana seems like a paradise. Have you ever seen a picture of these beautiful geysers in Yellowstone? I hope we get to see them with our eyes. But as parents, we know what it's going to take to get there. It's 2,200 miles away. Google says 32 hours by car. That doesn't include stops. Um, I know it's up near where Barrett lives in North Dakota. I think we're actually gonna pass by your hometown. We'll, we'll wave at it. Um, you know, there's a sense which our kids trust us, right? They wanna go to Montana. They're gonna get in Kit Haynes' car with us and they're gonna go. But you know about halfway to Greenville, it's gonna start. You know what I'm talking about? What's the question they're gonna start asking? Are we there yet? Now, when they ask that question, are they asking me to say, well, son, here's my map. I decided to go through St. Louis rather than Chicago. Um, I'm going to take this interstate and that interstate. 
He's not looking for me to give all the details. He wants to know, Dad, are we going to get to the dinosaur bones? Are we going to get to that thing that you promised that we would see? It's taking so dang long. (laughs) I don't think we're ever going to get there. And of course, by the end of the 2,200 miles, I'm sure Laura and I will be asking the same question. Are we are there yet? But hopefully when we get there, at least in this, this little microcosm of the analogy, it'll be worth it. All the ups and downs and the twists and turns and all the detours we may take, it'll be worth it. You know, how similar it is to walking by faith in the Lord in this life. Aren't there lots of twists and turns and detours and hardships that come along that make us wonder, God, are we ever gonna get there? I'm trusting you and I'm walking by faith, but it's so hard to keep waiting, especially when I don't see what it is you've promised. See, that's what Abram is asking in Genesis 15. As we dive into this text, we're gonna see that same question. How will I know? And the answer to his question comes down, as it always does, of course, to God's grace and faith in God's trustworthiness to keep his promises. See, this chapter is a watershed chapter in all of the Bible, not just his story, not just people's stories in the New Testament, but your story and my story, because we're still living in the middle of ours. It's about the type of faith that God accepts, the type of, faith that, the type of faith and grace that God gives to perfect that faith in us, and it's about that reassurance that we all need, even Father Abraham needs along the way to keep going, that yes, one day you will get there and your faith will be turned to sight. So pray with me as we dive into this text. Father, we thank you that you have preserved this word for us to equip and encourage your people with everything they need to trust you by faith. We thank you for the grace you've given to us, Lord. Would you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts now to receive again, Lord, or maybe for the first time. We beg you, Lord, that you would continue to pour out your grace and give us faith. Thank you, Lord. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, as we head into the first point, faith that is justified by grace, look back at Genesis 15 with me. I'm not gonna reread it. I want, it'd be helpful if you had a Bible open even on your phone or whatever. We're gonna go a lot and I try to keep it on the screen, but sometimes it's hard to see if you don't know the story and have been studying all week <laughs> like I have. This chapter has two scenes that follow the same pattern. We're gonna look at this first one. God comes to Abram to reassure him about the promise and Abram's like, uh, I have a question about that promise. And then God says, okay, and he gives a clarified word about the promise and a symbolic action and vision to help him see. So the first scene comes on the heels of chapter 14 where we heard last week that Abram has defeated these pirate kings, these bad dudes. And so if you defeat the baddest dudes of all and you become the baddest dude, what's gonna maybe happen? They're gonna come back after you. And so God is coming like a military general saying, well done, Abram. Don't be afraid. I know you might be fearing some blowback from these guys. Don't be afraid. Remember that blessing that McKizeldeck gave you? That I'm the one who delivered you? Yeah, I am your deliverer. I am your shield and I will continue to deliver you. In fact, I am gonna give you that reward. So he turned down that reward from the king of Sodom and God says, I see your faith and I am gonna bring that reward. Well, of course, the mention of the reward reminds Abram he doesn't have it yet. The reward was offspring and land. To be a nation, we've learned, you have to have offspring and you gotta have a place to be the nation, and he doesn't have it yet. And so the first interaction with God and Abram in this chapter has to do with the promise of offspring, but Abram has a complaint. He has a lament about it. 
He's like saying, God, I hear you, but you actually haven't given me a child yet. So I can't see how it's gonna happen. And so I have this household to servant. And I'm thinking maybe I should use those customs that allow me to adopt him so I can hedge my bets and maybe I'll I'll have that inheritance. It's not quite what you said, but since I can't see it, maybe that's what you're talking about. You haven't given me a child, God. I don't really know what to do. Does Abraham's response seem unbelieving to you? Maybe a little frustrated. As I've been studying this week, that was my my first thought was, well, I thought this was the great father of faith. I thought this is the one that doesn't respond with wavering or unbelief when God promises. Wouldn't we expect Abram to say, well, God, since I know you so well and you've been promising and speaking directly to me, it's really easy to believe in your promises. I'm good. No. But here's an important thing to see in his response. The ESV translates their Lord God in that verse, in verse two. That's Yahweh, the covenantal name. Better yet, it's like he's saying sovereign Lord. Some, some uh, versions say sovereign Lord. Abraham is coming to God as a servant with his complaint. He's saying, you are my sovereign master. I'm not, I'm not questioning an unbelief. I'm submitting my limited perspective to the one who I do trust, who I know has all authority to do it. This is intercessory prayer. This is not scoffing unbelief. This is intercessory prayer. And he's lamenting in faith here. We can tell this from God's response in verse four. If this was scoffing unbelief, what would we expect from God? (laughs) Smite him down, unbelief. No, God gives him a clarified word of promise. He says, no, no, no. It's not gonna be the way you think through your customs. It's not gonna be that man. It's gonna be one from your own body, your very loins your own biology, your own seed. He doesn't rebuke him. He gives him a clarified word of promise. That's grace. And again in verse five, God gives him a symbolic vision like he did in chapter 13 where he took him up to the land and said, look at the land, look at the dust of the earth. So shall your offspring be. And then he gives him a new vision. He says, look up at the stars. He moves him from earth to heaven, a greater vision. Look up at the stars and see if you can number them. Now, we don't know if he really did count them. The Jesus Storybook Bible has him count to like 997, something like that. I don't know if he did. But what we do have here is what is his response? What does he say? Y'all look in the screen. What does he say? You can say it out. Believe. Yeah. Did he say anything? No. We have kind of a silent belief. As God is showing him the stars, it's like God is saying, Abram, who made these stars? I am the Lord of heaven and earth. Surely if I can make the stars, I can bring one from your own loins. You who is good as dead, I can bring a child. Trust me. Trust me. And Abram does. And that's what verse six says. That's another way we know that his questioning of God here is in faith. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, And he counted it, Abram's faith, as righteousness. So here we come to a pinnacle moment in Abram's story. God has evaluated Abram's faith and he finds it acceptable. He accepts Abram's trust in him as if he was perfectly right, as if he had been obeying all along. And we know he hasn't obeyed all along. We know he's not sinless. He has made mistakes. He has sinned. Next week, we're going to see another huge way that he and Sarah both sin. But God graciously accepts him anyway because God accepts faith 
as righteousness. That's what this type of faith is. It's trust. And so God gives him word to believe, a word of promise, and he believes him. Believing in God's word is believing God himself. He believes what God has said is trustworthy, reliable, and dependable. And so he believes that God is trustworthy, reliable, and dependable. But this verse isn't just some verse sitting on top of Abraham's story. It is the Old Testament gospel that points forward to the New Testament gospel that sits on top of every person is ever trusted in God's story. Turn with me to the best commentary ever written on Genesis 15. The commentator's name is the Apostle Paul. It's in Romans chapter 4. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to read portions of it. Um, Sometimes when you prepare a sermon, you want to look at the best commentaries available. This is it. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, Paul has been talking about the doctrine of justification by faith, which is the fancy way to say what we confessed earlier, which is what we're talking about here. Look at verse 1 with me. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. See, up to this point, Paul has been trying to prove that whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, all have fallen short of God's standard. All are ungodly. And that's not fun news to hear because how could you ever be right with God if you can't do it? How could you be right with God if he sees you as ungodly? How is anyone ever made right or justified in his sight? It's by his grace through our faith. That's what Paul goes on to say in 16 through 18. Look at that with me on the screen. Paul writes again, This is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, not only those that came through the Jewish line, but also to the one who shares in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Here's the promise again there. In the presence of the God whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, so as he has been told, so shall your offspring be. There's that promise again. Paul's point is that Abraham believed God, even when it seemed impossible. In hope against hope. How could a man 99 years old and his wife have a child? He had to believe in like something, like a miracle, like a resurrection from the dead, didn't he? He had to believe in something he couldn't understand and see. And the same way you and I who believe in that same God and those same hope against hopes, we are the true offspring of Abraham. We don't have time to read all of this. I promise we won't. But the main thing I want you to see is the grace of God in justifying ungodly sinners like you, like me, and like Abraham. Abraham needed justification just as much as you and I do, even though he's recorded in Scripture. He's a father of the faith, but he needs the same grace that you and I need. And I want want you to see that in the context of the passage. I've wrestled with that this week because verse six comes before verses eight, verses seven and eight, which we read earlier. It was confusing to me because Paul also writes that Abram didn't waver in unbelief, that he didn't didn't seem to do that. And I'm like, well, it seems like he did. How, how, How can Paul say that? I think we can say it because verse six 
There on the screen, or it's not on the screen, if you can put that back on the screen, from Genesis 15, 6. Verse 6, it's the narrator's theological, Holy Spirit-inspired, but narrator's theological interpretation of everything that has happened up until this point and everything that will happen from this point. See, sometimes we like to think that God spoke from heaven and said, Abram, I've credited your faith as righteousness. No need to have faith anymore. No need to worry. I've, I've written it in the stars. Don't you sometimes want God to give you a direct word? Do, do you not want to have to read something? Do you want him to speak to you directly? Do you want him to show it to you in the sky? Well, if he gives you something directly and shows it to you in the sky, you still need faith. You understand that? Abram didn't go, oh, it's it, not a problem anymore after this. I have 15.6, thank you, God. No, he says, I'm gonna give you the land, and he goes, well, how am I gonna know? See, God's been evaluating Abram all along, and he's seen enough. He trusts God. He's not perfect, but he trusts God. But that's not how we think of faith, is it? See, I think we have a problem in the evangelical church. We often want faith to be a linear story that has no problems, maybe some ups and downs, but a linear story that crescendos in this great amount of faith that we never have to look back and ever wonder or ever question God ever again. But that's not how it works. We don't get a land and believe God and God credit to him as righteousness like written down in scripture for all of time, but I get it in Christ and so do you. And the second thing I think is a problem for us is we tend to turn faith into a work. What I mean is, is that we think it's this amount of faith or this greatness of faith. That if I just have like this, this faith, like, okay, like Abraham's faith is here and, and okay, maybe, maybe, you know, like, I don't know, Mother Teresa's is here and then mine's here, but I gotta get it up here to be right with God. No, it's by his grace through your faith. It doesn't say the amount. What does the narrator say? Did you pray the prayer? Did you mean it enough? No, Abraham trusted God, not his own faith. It's not faith in faith, it's faith in God that justifies. So our right standing before God is not dependent on the measure of our faith, it's dependent on the one who gives it to us. It's dependent on God himself. So that means your relationship with God, your right standing before him, all that you need to be able to trust him and know that he's for you and not against you, all you need is dependent on his grace to you. It's dependent on his grace to you and faith is how you take it. It's how you receive it, it's a gift. So the gospel is in the Old Testament, y'all. The Old Testament's really important because it preaches the same thing to us, which is what Paul concludes in Romans four. It's not just for him, it's for us. He writes, the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus from the dead, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's a promise. God keeps his promises. You don't need super apostle faith or super patriarch faith. He's already given you that promise in Jesus Christ, and you need what Abraham needed to receive it, faith, because that's the kind of faith that God will justify. It's also the kind of faith that God's gonna strengthen and sanctify and help you to obey. Let's go to the second point, faith that obeys by grace. Look back at Genesis chapter 15 with me to see the next scene. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur from the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? 
And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And then skip to the first part of verse 18. The Lord made a covenant with Abram on that day. So let's stop there and we'll come back to the other verses in a minute. Scene two follows the same pattern as scene one. But this time it's not about the offspring, it's about the land. And again, Abram brings that question to God in faith, but God responds this time with more than a word picture like dust of the earth or stars of the sky. He responds in a solemn oath to fulfill his promises or die. God is swearing on his own grave that he's gonna do it. He's literally binding himself. He's literally cutting a covenant which is what verse 18 says. The Lord cut a covenant with Abram that day. It makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of cutting going on. Now, we do not know completely what all of this ceremony means. I don't have any hidden meetings for you. If you want to read a commentary, I can give it to you. Many think that it has to do with future sacrificial system of Israel, but we don't really know why they were three years old. We don't know why these specific animals. There's a lot of speculation. But what we do know is this is not a sacrifice to appease God and say, I need to be right with you. This is God doing it with Abram. You got that? Sacrifices are different. Sacrifices is what God commanded that people did in faith. God is doing this with Abram. And cutting the animals was something that you did in a treaty with like a greater king. And you were both supposed to walk through. You walk through these cut animals. And as you go through, you're both are saying, if I don't keep my, my promise, may I be like that dead animal. The other one's saying, if I don't keep my promise, may I be like that dead animal. That's what's happening here. Now, the interesting thing is, is there's not a lot of stipulations. Usually in covenants, there's all these stipulations before you cut it, but there don't seem to be any, at least on this. I think verse six sheds light on that again. Because up until this point, everything that God's been doing with Abram, it's been conditional. It's been conditional on Abram continuing to step in faith towards God. But we know, we know from 15.6 that God has counted his faith as righteousness. So he's not looking for Abram to do something to make him right. He's already right, and now he's entering in this covenant. What is Abram's responsibility? Y'all tell me, what does he have to do? He has to believe. He's got to bring him some animals. He says, bring me some animals. But you know what's interesting is, is Abram seemed to kind of know this ceremony, didn't he? Didn't, God didn't say cut him in half. He just kind of seemed to know to cut him in half. I think he knew God is about to do something, some kind of oath-binding promise to me in response to, to, to me following him. I think he knew something like that. It's supremely important to understand because all other covenants are gonna have some stipulations and they're gonna have some stuff. Paul writes about that in Romans th uh, Galatians 3. But you need to see this. They're all grounded first in this covenant of grace and promise. They're first grounded there. Even the second half of this covenant in chapter 17. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. You can't understand this covenant without understanding the second half of it, the covenant of circumcision. Many years pass. He fails again. He tries to make the covenant happen in his own way. We'll talk about that next week. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. 
Let's stop there for a moment. That word make there is not God cutting a new covenant. It doesn't say he cut a new covenant. He is affirming what he already cut and ratified. It's already been done. He's now saying, I am confirming it. I'm giving you a sign. In the first service, we had a children's sermon. talked about signs of covenants, like rainbow for Noah, circumcision for the Jews, or this is a sign of a covenant. I make promises. Does this make you married? No, but it's a sign that I'm going to keep my promises. That's what God is doing through circumcision. And he does it in grace, even though there's stipulations. Walk blameless, walk before me. It's still in God's grace because God knows he's gonna sin again. (laughs) All right, back to the text. See how Abram responds. He falls on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations and you know what i am gonna make this covenant not i'm I'm talking here i'm going off the text i'm gonna make this covenant not just with you anymore abram i'm now making it with all of your offspring everything you believed will then bring all of your offspring forever in if they believe and i'm gonna give you the land i will surely do it he trusts him in faith he worships him and then he makes it with his offspring. I want you to marvel at that for a second. Do you realize that if you believe God in Christ through faith, that you are the literal fulfillment of those words on the screen? God keeps his promises. He said, I'm gonna make my covenant with all your offspring, not just through physical or ethnic lineage, but the lineage of faith. That means if you believe in God, believe in, God in Christ, you are part of this covenant and It was promised beforehand thousands of years ago. Marvel at that. You are the answer to Abraham's question at some point. God does it by by grace. We'll put the next set of verses on the screen. I'm not gonna go into deep detail, but you need to know that the sign of this covenant is a painful one. Um, there's not a, lot of, not a lot of kids in here. So circumcision, not gonna do a, a scientific lesson for you, but just think about this. The sign of this covenant, it already existed out there. God's just repurposing something that's already been in the culture. It's painful. He's gonna have to cut the very area that if he screws up, it would mean the promise can't happen. Just leave that there for y'all. And so will all his descendants. It's a painful reminder that it's by faith in God's grace, not by works. So this covenant has a sign. Did he do this to make Abraham prove again? All right, Abraham, I got my covenant with you. You need to prove it by doing this thing. No, God is gracious to give steps of obedience to help encourage and strengthen and sanctify our faith. That's one of the main things I want you to get from this point. We have a complicated relationship with faith and obedience, don't we? We have a complicated relationship with grace and obedience, don't we? We tend to think that God's commands to obey mean that if we don't, we won't be right with God. But see, I've seen so much grace in this. God has already covenanted in grace and said, I give you a step. And all you have to do is receive it by faith. Do you think cutting cutting that area of the body did anything? No, it expressed the faith that they had in God, that, that they were taking on the sign, they were believing his promises. Obedience flows from faith dependent on God's grace. So for example, in our new covenant, baptism and communion, those are some of our signs. Does baptism save you? No. Does communion save you? No. So why do we do it? Aren't you encouraged every time you see someone baptized? 
Aren't you encouraged every time you take the cup and the bread, even when they're tiny little prepackaged things, to remember that Christ died for you? It's, a, it's an outward sign of an inward reality. Sometimes faith is hard to see, but God is gracious to give us signs to remember. And that's one of the things I'm also hoping to do on my sabbatical. I'm gonna go and trace my childhood steps. I'm gonna visit all places in the country that I've lived. But one of the things I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go to Johnson Ferry Baptist Church in Marietta, Georgia, and I'm gonna go visit the baptismal that I was baptized in. I don't need to go back and look at it and go, that proves. But it's the first step of obedience I remember taking as a new Christian. And it encouraged me. And as I'm looking to find rest in God and remember who I am, I want to go back to my roots. I want to remember. I need kind of my own Genesis 15, 6 to remember, yes, he called me. He called me out of my sin. And I came forward. I don't remember exactly how it happened or why. I don't even remember the sermon that was preached. I just knew he was calling. And he confirmed it through that sign. I need that and you need that. Friends, God is gracious to give you steps to obey, to encourage your faith. I don't know what it is for you. Be baptized. Take communion. Bear one another's burden. Don't be anxious about anything. Believe. I don't know what it is for you. But he's gracious to give it to you, to not prove your faith, but to help you demonstrate it, encourage you, and strengthen and encourage you along the way. Encourages me. So what step of obedience is he given in his scripture that he's called you to obey, that you need to take a step towards him in him today. I encourage you to take that step of faith, not to be made right with God, but to know that he's with you, to encourage you. Because the truth is, sometimes on this journey, aren't we asking that question? Are we there yet? It's so hard sometimes, isn't it? The twists and the turns and the detours and the pains and the, the hardships. Sometimes we're like the kids in the car. Are we there yet, God? But unlike the kids in the car, you and I might not see the final fulfillment. Because Abraham didn't, with our own eyes at least. We might not see it with our own eyes because Abraham didn't get to see the whole thing with his own eyes. As we head to the last point, look back at Genesis 15, where part we skipped. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You know, funnily enough, he says, how will I know? And God says, here's how you know. He gives them real specific details. Do you think this is the answer Abram was looking for? Do you think, what do you want to hear? You're not going to see the whole thing. In fact, all your descendants are going to be afflicted for 400 years. Anybody want to hear that in God's promise? He does say you're going to die in peace, and he kept that, Genesis 25, 8. But that doesn't mean his descendants are going to also have the same promise to die in peace, does it? See, part of the promise means affliction, hardship, and a long delay before ultimate fulfillment. But God has a purpose. God is just. Did you catch that there? The Amorites, which is like a, kind of like there's 10 nations in, in, in the Canaan, God says, it's not time for me to execute my judgment on them. It wouldn't be just yet. I'm waiting until it would be just. See, the flip side of saving faith and obedient faith, faith in God, he's just to declare righteous, but he's also just as just to declare disobedient, unbelieving faith as unrighteous. That's a sobering thought. 
It's terrifying. It terrified Abraham, didn't it? A dreadful darkness comes on him. But I think we should see the grace of God even in this. Because the people who would have been reading this account years later would know that God is sovereignly in control of even the hardships and affliction. And he will come out and he will make it right. He will judge the nations that oppresses them. Egypt, we know that. He will judge it. He will do what is right. And he has purposes he's waiting to fulfill, even as we don't know how he's gonna do it. So imagine what this would have been like for you if you were like an Israelite in year 292 of this prophecy. I say like you're 40 years old, you're in 292, you've heard these things, you know there's Father Abraham, but you look ahead of you and go, well, apparently I'm gonna die before this happens. How do you keep going in faith? Or imagine you're an Israelite who's been um, on the edge of the promised land and, and, and it's scary and there's giants in the land and God promised, but is he gonna be with you? Or you're an Israelite in Babylon after your people have gotten the land and now they're in exile and he's promised to bring you back. But it doesn't line up with Jeremiah's prophecy and you're not gonna see it. Or imagine you're that one waiting for the Messiah who's gonna deliver all of his people but then he dies on a hill outside of Jerusalem. Or maybe you're that Christian that you know and you have 20-20 hindsight and every commentary on the world that tells you how all these covenants are fulfilled in Christ but it's 2,000 years removed. God hasn't done all that you wanted him to do yet, and God has not returned to make it all right. Is it worth it to keep trusting God by faith when you might not see the fulfillment in this lifetime? Yes, because God justifies that kind of faith. Yes, because God sanctifies and strengthens that kind of faith, and yes, he even completes and perfects that kind of faith, and we can know it, and here's how we can know it. Look back one last time at Genesis 15 as we get close to the end here. When the sun had gone down, this is verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Yo, if two people were supposed to walk through the pieces, where is Abram? Y'all tell me, where is he? He's asleep. He didn't walk through the pieces. So who's the one taking on both sides of the covenant? The Lord is alone. That's what that smoking fire pot is, a theophany, a manifestation of God's presence. The amazing grace of Genesis 15 is that the Lord cut this covenant knowing full and well it would mean the cutting of his one and only son. The bloody covenant of the cross. The bloody covenant of the cross. Jesus became like those cut animals. He became like those cut animals for you and for me and he took on the curse and not only take on the curse, everything he earned by obeying on the other side of the covenant, he transferred and gave to those who would believe by faith. Friends, we live with a fuller and more sure word of promise. We live with a fuller and more sure covenant ceremony and we live with a fuller and more sure sign of the covenant, the cross of Jesus Christ. His body broken for you and his blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. So is he gonna keep his promises to you? He already has. He already has. So the ones he's revealed in his word, they will come to pass. And all those other things that you don't have a direct word for, right? I don't know if you're gonna get married or if you're gonna have kids or if you're gonna die today or die in a good old age. I don't know. And none of us really can know. And even if you could know, would it make it any easier to walk by faith? No. We must walk by faith. But you can take an obedient step in the Lord. Don't be paralyzed by your sin. Don't be paralyzed by making the wrong decision. 
Look at all these people. They made tons of wrong decisions and so many mistakes. God brought his promises anyway. Is he, is he gonna like, screw up? He's gonna screw up your plans because you didn't do it right? No, his grace to you by your faith. But not your faith in the outcome you're hoping for. Faith in the one who will surely do it even if you can't see it yet. So, are we there yet? Well, we are at the end of the sermon. <laughs> but we're more than some kids in the car on the way to Montana. We're the sons and daughters of God by faith in Christ. And where we're going is way better than Montana. We're still waiting for him to return, but we stand in a long line of saints who have always waited by faith. And we need to endure because when we do, one day we will need faith no more because it will be sight. We will be there. He promises. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your promises to us in Scripture, and I pray right now, Lord, that you would pour out your grace on all of us that have heard this word, whether we've been looking at it all week or we're just kind of looking at it for the first time today. Lord, we need your grace to help us believe. So I pray for my friends here, Lord, that there is a clear step that, that, that you brought to their mind as I was preaching. Lord, I pray that you would help each and every person take one more step towards you in faith today and let tomorrow worry about itself. Give us the grace we need for today and our weakness, Lord. Help us to turn to you, Lord, we pray in the name of Christ, amen.